Hello, listeners, and welcome to Extra AF. I'm your historian, Kina. And I'm your librarian, Ashley. Once a month, we're here to deliver part contemporary news and part listener stories. Oh, yes. Yeah. Welcome to episode one, the June yeah. episode. This month, since we're still getting some emails in, we decided to start out with stories from our hometowns and stories from our husband's hometowns that we forced them to give us. Yay! <laughs> They were super thrilled about it, and by super thrilled, I mean not at all. Oh, absolutely. Yes. (laughs) No desire to do it whatsoever. Yep. Uh, But if you want to be featured on next month's, then go ahead and email us at historicalafpod at gmail.com, and we're looking for family history, your experiences at historical places, paranormal or true crime, and uh, if your hometown has a cool history or a legend. So anything you can think of, send to us. And folklore we will feature you. Anything. Oh man, I love some good old folklore. Yes. I am all about that. Dude, Didn't I you? like I am such a nosy, messy person. I just want to hear like everyone's business. Oh yeah. Like, write in and tell me all your business. Yeah, we've gotten some emails so far. We've gotten one on a urban legend in a hometown. And then uh my mom actually emailed one in today <laughs> about a uh kind of like a ghostly phenomenon that happened in her hometown so that's exciting awesome i'm really excited do you want to go first do you want me to go first oh my god i'm so excited about my news story that i want to go first okay okay cool (laughs) yes yes so we're going to start out with something that's contemporary in the news of history and libraries because sometimes we're doing like deep dives in history and then something really cool happens in the news and we're like we want to talk about it so my headline is beer archaeologists are reviving ancient ales with some strange results. I love this already. All right. First of all, I was in college for five years studying history. and Not one person told me I could be a beer archaeologist. Real talk. I want my money back. Yes. <laughs> you hear me, UCA and Euler. Yes. <laughs> my money back. <laughs> Although then I started reading it and I was like, all right, you know. I spoke too soon, but here we go. (laughs) So the closest that Travis Rupp came to getting fired from the Avery Brewing Company in Boulder, Colorado, he says, was the time he tried to make chicha. The recipe for the Peruvian corn-based beer cobbled together from bits of pre-Incan archaeological evidence called for chewed corn partially fermented in spit. So... Rep's first task had been to persuade his colleagues to gather around a bucket and offer up their choppers for the cause. No, I'm good. Once he got to brewing, the corn quinoa spit mixture gelatinized in a stainless steel tank, creating a dense blob equivalent in volume and texture to about seven bathtubs of polenta. Wow. Okay. That's so yummy. Ugh. Also, no wonder he was almost fired. That had to have cost that brewery a lot of money. Yeah. Seven bathtubs? Come on, dude. That's a lot. Anywho, in another go, Rupp managed to avoid the bruised gelatinous fate, but encountered a new problem when it came to draining the tank. It literally turned into cement in the pipes because the corn was so finely ground. I thought you were going to say semen, and I was like, oh! <laughs> oh no, we're not going that dark. Okay, good. Oh, he adds that people were a little cranky. 
no shit. Those things can't be cheap. Yeah, no. This is why I'm like, you're not a real beer archaeologist. You're just an idiot that's claiming it's fun. Unless you're a listener. You're not an idiot. I'm sorry. You're kind of an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) So he says that these are the kind of sticky situations that come with trying to bring ancient flavors into modern times. The self-proclaimed beer archaeologist. There it is. I knew he wasn't a real thing. Ah. (laughs) He's traveled the world in search of clues as to how the ancient civilizations made and consumed beer. Which, I mean, that's actually pretty cool. I would do that. With Avery Brewing Company, he has concocted eight of them in a series called Ales of Antiquity. The brews are served in Avery's restaurant and a tasting room. Which, road trip. Fuck yeah. As long as it's not the gelatinous bathtub. I I don't want the spit beer. Um, nope. Hard pass. Hard pass. So the one thing that we've been really surprised about, he says, is that not a single one of them is undrinkable. Every one of them has gotten done and we're like, that's so weird. It's just so cool. So he's a dude of a many words. <laughs> he just sounds like a stoner to me. Like a yeah, coward. it does. So cool. So cool. So cool, dude. So cool. Amy is in Colorado, so it's legal. True. You make a valid point. <laughs> There's the Viking-inspired beer based on the information gleaned from sagas and the debris of ancient shipwrecks. It's made with juniper branches and baker's yeast, which gives a slight but surprising whiff of banana. Uh, no. His regret is that he had to ferment it in a regular brewing equipment rather than the more historically accurate trough made of a freshly cut and hollowed out juniper tree quitter (laughs) where's your dedication man yeah what kind of archaeologist are you you're chewing up corn for hours but you can't cut it on the tree yeah you can't hollow out a juniper tree what the hell i know that's just no work ethic these days right millennials (laughs) i'm a zennial thank you very much I'm a millennial and I hate it, but like, <laughs> but, but like Elijah uh, Schlesinger, however you say her last name, says I'm an elder millennial. Me too. I'm way up there. I'm a, I'm an oldie. Uh, the other day, Zeke's like, you realize that the stuff we grew up with is vintage now, and like, you shut your whore mouth. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> All right. So another beer called Beersheba is based on references and artifacts, primarily from Israel. It involves three types of grain and pomegranate juice in the style of King Zimri Lim, who was known to send slaves into the mountains to get snow for his ice house so that his beer could be served cold. What a dick. I mean, one, for having slaves, but two, like, seriously? You send them all up into a cold mountain? I bet they didn't have a coat. Nope. (laughs) One of Rev's personal favorites, despite smelling like, oh, shit. Okay. (laughs) I must have skipped this sentence when I read it before. His favorite, despite smelling a little bit like baby spit up, <gasps> tastes Mm-mm. like a funky fruit roll up. I'm not putting it in my mouth. No. Nothing about that sounds good. No. God damn it, Rupp. So a beer called Benedictus came about when Rupp teamed up with a couple of Italian monks to recreate a monastic recipe calling for warm root, warm wood and lavender and dating to... 825 CE. It smells like a spicy men's shampoo and tastes like drinking an herb garden. Where is this guy getting his, like, oh, what's the word when you compare things? I'm like, comparisons. Where is he getting these comparisons from? A spicy man's shampoo? 
like I'm not putting anything that's described as tasting like shampoo in my mouth or baby spit up. But the, hmm, I have a lot of issues here. Yes. <laughs> That's the Peruvian chicha, on the other hand, is sour and summery. All right, whatever, dude. It's still made with spit. I'm not. Oh, yeah. The brewery's latest is a porter meant to show what George Washington would have been swigging at Mount Vernon during his retirement years. I don't know why I went all Southern on that, but it's just sounded like. <laughs> Rub is not alone in the world of beer archaeology, which is actually surprising. Patrick McGovern is a scientific director of the Biomolecular Archaeological Project at the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. God damn, that's a mouthful. Okay. That's not going to fit on a business card. No. No. He is also the author of Ancient Brews, Rediscovered and Recreated, and he's known as the Indiana Jones of Ancient Ales. God damn it. That is the title I didn't know I needed till just right now, and now it's taken, and now I'm upset. You know what? He's self-proclaimed, though, so, like, you can take that shit. Make it your own. You can proclaim yourself. Hell yeah. It's gonna happen. Suck it, Rub. <laughs> McGovern took a swig at the ancient chicha tier with the brewery at Dogfish Head in Delaware, which is a beer that Zeke drinks a lot. I've heard of that, yes. <laughs> Billy, it's made of spit. <laughs> he says that they chewed the red Peruvian corn for eight hours. The insides of their mouths were pretty much cut up and their jaws were aching. I'm good. Nope. 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 He said the final product involved peppercorns and wild strawberries. Dogfish Head has been making chicha ever since, both serving it to customers at the brewery and shipping it out. So, does that mean that they chew up all of it, or do they just chew up the first one and then recreate it without the spit? Ooh, that's a good question. I hope it's the latter. But you should definitely wait until Zeke is taking a giant swig of this to tell him it's made of spit. (laughs) So, the trouble with recreating ancient brews is that it's actually impossible to do it correctly, because... Um, you don't have 100% certainty by any means. The basic ingredients, I think, we can be pretty sure of, but we don't know about the microorganisms, bittering agents, and other additives that we might have missed. So he's saying that, like, we can guess pretty much what their beers would have been like, but we can't completely 100% recreate it. In a way, we will truly never be able to taste what King Midas was drinking or the brews of Machu Picchu or even something much more recent, like George Washington's favorite porter. I can't recreate what's on the individual clothes that day that they were producing the beer that could have fallen into it. I can't create the yeast that's in the air, the yeast that is in some guy's beard. <laughs> oh, man, that's gross. Does that happen? Is that part of the flavor? The shit falling out of dude's beards? Yep. Oh, man, I'm learning a lot. Yeah, I I've mean, read about that, and it's, it's fucking weird. I mean, we make beer, but it's on a very small scale, so <laughs> this is all new to me here. Okay. <laughs> He says he can get as close as he can, and he will do his damnness to get as close as he can. So Rupp is now gearing up to tackle a controversial question among brewers. What did the original Indian pale ale really taste like? And he's also planning trips to investigate the brewing traditions of Kazakhstan and Uruguay, and exploring whether it might be possible to resurrect a beer that sank aboard a Swedish ship almost 400 years ago. Huh. That's cool. That is really cool. He says someday just for fun and if technology will allow it, Rupp would love to resurrect ancient yeast from Antarctic ice cores and brew something with it. To McGovern, on the other hand, the holy grail for ancient fermented beverages would be to discover and recreate the Paleolithic alcoholic beverage. So back to the dinosaurs. Nice. 
Uh, there's two million years there, at least, in which humans were probably drinking fermented beverages and we don't have any containers. So I don't know how they would do that, but I'd be interested to see what they're going to try to do. Terrible so, that because he's a beer archaeologist, I want him to also study like how prison hooch is made. <laughs> like, Get you a prison toilet, get you some fruit cocktail. <laughs> So, through his escapades into beer history, Rep has concluded that we have beer history all wrong. First of all, he says there's a perception that ancient or historic beers were undrinkable and crap and thick and just blah. That is a quote. I'm not making that up. He is just a master of the English language. Yes, he is. <laughs> but Rep maintains that the ancients wouldn't settle for mundane gruel any more than he would. Which makes sense. He says, we know that the Egyptians didn't do that. They actually record putting fruits and things into their beer to sweeten it. And they literally varietize their beer. So he's arguing that it's not just some crap that we're like, that's gross what they drank. That they were actually like we were today. You want to drink your fancy craft beers and not that garbage. Yes. Kind of like Mutter's Milk on Firefly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, McGovern actually agrees. He says, we think that humans have been basically the same from the beginning and that we have the same sensory organs, that we have the same response to alcohol in our brains, and we know what we like. Cultural and individual preferences aside, he says there's likely a thorough line in what humans think make a good drink. There's also another assumption that if cultures didn't actually record that they drank beer, that they didn't drink beer. But he says, how many books have you read on milk? Do you think the history of milk doesn't exist because they didn't talk about it, which is a valid point. Just because they don't talk about something that common doesn't mean it wasn't there. In some seemingly beerless societies, he says, it's possible the drink was so common that it didn't seem worth writing about, or at least didn't seem worth writing about in the highfalutin silver of the population that could actually write. This dude. <sighs> highfalutin? Who says Highfalutin. This? Now I'm going to pan for gold. Is he like a moonshotter for like Mississippi? I, don't know. That's like, <laughs> I mean, he's like spitting in a bucket, so True. I'm willing to bet he's not originally from Colorado. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, God. Okay, so the ancient Greeks, for example, aren't widely considered to have been beer drinkers, but because it doesn't come up in their written records, doesn't mean it didn't happen. After a two-year scavenger hunt through the records and across archaeological sites, Rupp has come to believe that the Greeks were indeed brewers, at least during the Bronze Age. For example, decades-old excavation records written by archaeologists working at prehistoric settlements found vases containing an imperfectly ground flour, including bits of seed husks. So the dude's, like, wildly speculating that because he found a vase with some grain in it that it's going to be to make beer. But I really don't think that's a uh, thing to go by. Yeah. He says that it stands to reason that the ancient Greeks might have been guzzling beer just like the Egyptians, Mesopotamians, Scandinavians, Romans, and Babylonians. He says he's very open to the idea that the Greeks were making beer. Well, of course you are. You're the one spouting it off. Of course yeah. you are. Yeah. Do it. Cite your sources, man. Government says it's not completely out of the realm of possibilities. He did a chemical analysis of the remains of a tomb in central Turkey that dated to about 700 BCE. And it showed that King Midas of the Greek mythology was drinking a mixture of grape wine, barley beer, and honeymead. Something like a drink they called the Midas touch. But <laughs> And uh, they actually recreated something like that at the Dogfish Head Brewery. In the Iliad, he says, a mixed beverage called Kiyong? Ki is given to soldiers injured in the Battle of Troy 
as if the wine beer mead trio wasn't enough. McGovern says that there's good evidence that the Greeks were topping off the mixed beverages with a sprinkling of grated cheese. No, thanks. I'm good. I like my wine and I like my cheese. I don't like them together. I mean, beer cheese soup is good. So. Okay. That's my NPR segment about beer. This guy. <laughs> he's, he's yikes-tastic. Yeah, I, I, at first I was like, I want to be a beer archaeologist. And then I was like, you made that up. Yeah. It's not real. It's not even like a title that was bestowed upon him. He was just like, I'm a beer archaeologist. <laughs> it's just two dudes that work in a brewery. So yeah. it's not even like real stories. Yeah. I think it's funny. I'm interested to think what real archaeologists think about him just calling himself one. Cause yeah, it's kind of like the whole argument where like librarians get really mad when people who don't have library degrees call themselves librarians. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. So. <laughs> it's yes. a very testy situation. Yes. Uh, but yeah, to each his own. I mean, some of those, I, I don't want to try the ones that have spit in them. But the nope. King Titus one, maybe. That sounds kind of cool. But Yeah, maybe. Yeah, so um, I don't have a specific news article, but I want to talk about kind of an amalgamation of them. So in library news-ish, summer reading is starting soon. Some places have already started sign up. Some uh, are starting in the beginning of June. But a lot of people think that the libraries that do summer reading are, they do it just for kids, but it's for adults too. And, you know, you can win prizes and some places do really cool stuff. So, like, that's what kind of got me started thinking about it. Because this year's summer reading theme is a universe of stories. So, a lot of it is, like, alien themed. And, you know, I'm all about the aliens. <laughs> we learned some pretty cool alien puppet shows and stuff at one of the end services I went to and all that. So, it got me thinking, like, you know, people don't know that a lot of libraries do summer reading for adults. So what else do libraries have that people don't know about? Spoiler alert for the listeners, libraries don't just hold books anymore. Like oh, the right. right. What? So the library I used to work at has Halloween costumes for kids in the month of October. There are cake pans that you can check out at several of the libraries I've worked at. And they're not just like regular cake pans. I mean, there's like Scooby-Doo, Spider-Man, all kinds of stuff. I've worked somewhere that had kits you could take home with like cookbooks and equipment to make cookies or pizza or bread, crock pot meals, all kinds of stuff. Like it's so cool. And now a lot of libraries have maker spaces. Mm -hmm. And like my husband works at one that they have a laser engraver and 3D printers and stations to make perler beads and their sewing machines, like so much cool stuff. And from all that, we have kind of the evolution of librarians. And like Kena was just talking about the beer archaeologist there in Portland, Oregon is the beer librarian. What? Yes, it is a beer librarian that works with all the breweries and like catalogs, all this shit. It's really cool. That was in the last couple of years. There's a library up there, the Multnomah County Library, I think. It's Multnomah, but I can't remember if it's county. And they have so much cool stuff. 
once a year they have this campaign that they organize with libraries all across the nation now, but just started there the first year, where they train you how to, as a librarian, look at people's tattoos and recommend what they should read based on the tattoos. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, like, libraries do so much cool stuff. Like, I'm trying to think, a lot of libraries now have, like, Comic-Cons, and there's specific, like, you know, there's different levels. I mean, you can have music librarians who work for orchestras or church librarians, the, you know, the beer librarian. I really, I was thinking about this the other day. I really want there to be a weed librarian, like, in the states that weed is becoming legalized. I really want that to be a thing. Oh, I'm sure it will be. Yeah, yeah, and, like, I've never really partook of that situation, but I would 100%, like, volunteer my services to get that up and running. Fascinating history. Yes, yes. I've been really fascinated with watching, um, like, Bong Appetit on Viceland. It's, like, it's a cooking show or cooking competition, but they cook with weed. And so I've been, like, learning a whole lot about the different, like, tannins and things that I thought were in wine but didn't realize were also in weed, like, stuff like that. So. It's really cool, and everyone should call their library and say, hey, besides books, what else do you offer in your collection? Because it's amazing, and Kina and I, with our research, like live in library collections and databases and all that, and I'm even going to, in my hometown story, talk about something I found through the library. But yeah, it's really cool. So the when I was searching for news articles, I just saw over and over and over about how summer reading is starting. And I even popped into my local library today to ask when summer reading signup starts. I used to run summer reading for the local library for the adult program. So I want everyone to do it because libraries are awesome. Like a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of news stories out there right now about libraries being destroyed in different places. And, you know, like, as a library professional, I will always be heartbroken about the burning of Alexandria and all that. And I read the other day that only 1% of all academic things in libraries has survived the course of history so far, which is really upsetting. So I wanted to focus on the good. They have so much cool stuff. And I really love going to like ALA sponsored type things. I want to go to ALA. It's coming up and I desperately want to go. But I love going to those things where people can just sit around and talk about all the cool shit that they've got. Uh, Like board games and tabletop games have started becoming really fancy. Some places you can check out telescopes or uh, what are they called? Geocaching kits like the backpacks with the GPS and hiking kits, fishing poles, all kinds of stuff. Everyone needs to support their libraries and all that. And like the libraries have, libraries have been in the news for like funding being cut from government agencies and all that. So the more interest we show in libraries, the more funding they can possibly get. And like I've gone to the Capitol here in Little Rock and held signs with fellow co-workers to encourage our representatives to vote for library funding and all of that on library legislative days and all that. So I want everyone to love libraries as much as I do. Seven years of my life as a teen librarian. And, yeah. you know, for one, it's a safe place for kids. And both mm-hmm. of our libraries actually provided free meals um, yep. for a lot of the 
you know, impoverished neighborhoods that they might not be able to eat dinner. So we fed them and it's a place where they can go. And we had the internet, which a lot of people don't think about that. But a lot of kids can't do their homework. They have to have the internet and they don't have it at home. So Vibrary is yep. the only way they can actually get that. You know, we did, uh, like she said, one of my, our library that we worked at together was one of the first ones to do your fishing poles and tackle boxes. And, mm-hmm. you know, summer reading program brings in a lot of experts. I used to have ghost hunters and, you know, we had an art history professor from school. We had, uh, I brought in a planetarium one year. So Krav Maga. Yeah, Krav Maga. We did cooking things with the cooking school. Like it's all opportunities you might not get to go do anywhere else and it's all free there's never a charge so it's really 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 cool so yeah I used to run a ton of craft classes like homemade wind chimes and terrariums and like alcohol ink coasters and like make and take crafts planting you know seedlings and making bookmarks I mean all kinds of stuff and yeah totally free Oh, yeah. The last summer reading I was there, I got one of those pods for the virtual reality. Yes. Uh, Not cheap, but really fun. (laughs) There's a lot of libraries now that are offering Narcan now for overdoses. Yep. The library that I was most recently working at until I had to um, leave for my mental health, uh, they just this past week put their employees through Narcan training and they now have it on hand. But yeah, and um, they even have a social worker on staff now. Oh, that's amazing. Is wonderful. I, I can't remember her exact title and we weren't supposed to call her social worker, but we all called her social worker because that's what she is. <laughs> but, you know, like she was the community resource. She had like uh, hygiene kits to give to the homeless population that needed it with soap and toothbrush, toothpaste, all that. We kept that stuff on hand in the teen center as well. And yeah, we're kind of like the first line of a defense for especially like the smaller communities, a place I always stress in my interviews and stuff with people that libraries to me should be the beating heart of, of a community. They're a community center. Mm-hmm. So they just offer so many cool things. And I just really want people to be aware. Yeah, like free community, uh, computer classes, Excel, Word, you know, all of that. It's there's so much crap to do. Just call your libraries. Go into oh. it. I mean, and it's all fun stuff, too. It's not just, like, resume and all the adulting stuff. Like, we did Quidditch one year with a college yeah. that does Quidditch professionally. We did – I had a Native American specialist come, and we threw an Adelaide. That's You awesome. know, your girl's favorite programs were history programs. I had one with Egyptian where they had to decipher clues using hieroglyphs and then wrap each other up like mummies. That was a good time. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, highly recommend I think people need to get out of the notion that it's just a stuffy book thing. I probably the book part was probably like 20% of what I did, honestly. Yeah. And we are not like shushing people all day long. Libraries are not quiet spaces anymore. I'm probably partially deaf from death. I'm partially deaf from being around screaming teenagers for seven years. Same. So. Yep. yep. <laughs> ah, very loud. <laughs> Uh, I love that. You're a librarian. It must be so quiet and peaceful and you probably read all the time. Like I haven't read a book in forever because I don't have time. Right. Also, if you do go to your library, don't walk in and go, oh, you must spend all day reading. I'd love to work in a library. Don't do that. No. Librarians don't read all day. No. I mean, I was, you know, as the head of the teen center, I had to read as many YA books as I possibly could, especially for they put you in committees where you have to read books and then review them and stuff. So it was 
Until I quit to go to grad school. It's like I haven't read an adult book in like seven years. Yeah. But yeah, but I mean, we don't get to read on the clock. Like that's yeah, extra no. stuff that you have to do on your own time. Like we don't just sit at desks and read. Like I log more steps on my Fitbit mm-hmm. working in libraries than I did at any of the other jobs I've worked at except like manual labor in a warehouse. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There, yeah, no. <laughs> this has been a PSA for libraries. Woo! Yes, I'm sorry. I promise I'll actually have like a news story, news story next extra AF. But I just had to do my PSA for libraries first. They're, uh, I mean, that's how me and Ashley met was working in a library. They're yeah. very near and dear to us. Yep. And uh, we've spent most of our adult lives working in one. So. Big mood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do we want to do our husband's stories or our stories first? Ooh, that's next. a good question. You want to start with ours and then sure. with husbands? Yes. All right. So I grew up in the Ozark Mountains. So I am a real life hillbilly and I'm proud of it. And there are so many things to talk about history and legend and just folklore. I couldn't do them all, obviously. So if you are listening and you're in the Ozarks, please send these in so I can do them. Yes. <laughs> but I chose to do historical landmark in the town that I grew up because it just means so much to me. And then I was Googling and apparently I'm the only person ever that believes this place is haunted. So I'm going to tell you about that. (laughs) So I decided to tell a story of the Jacob Wolf house. When I was younger, probably in like sixth grade, my school took us there and it was a bunch of a lot of places like this. Historical places are just ran by volunteers in the city. So they're usually elderly (laughs) So it was a bunch of old people, and they asked if anybody would want to volunteer and kind of help them out. So I think there was like five or six of us that were like, hell yeah, we do. Uh, sixth grade, I didn't say that. but She totally said of, it. <laughs> so out of the like five or six people, I think for a while it was just me and my best friend growing up, and then it ended up just being me because I was still a teenager there. Everybody else was like, we have lives. We're going to party. And I'm like, I'm going to work in a museum. So <laughs> that's how my childhood went. Being the big ass nerd that I am, I jumped at this and I ended up working there for several years and I watched the store and then also gave tours. So humble brag, I was actually featured in a community spotlight and I got the key to the city of Norfolk. So I am a goddamn superhero because, you know, superheroes are the only ones to get keys to the city, right? That's so fancy. I know. It's really little. though. <laughs> I'm surprised you don't have it like hanging on the wall behind you listen I wanted to and it's in my cedar chest and I know it is but every time I'm like mom find my key to the city she's like I can't find it so I'm gonna have to go to Arkansas and find it apparently which I'm not making my mom store my stuff <laughs> throw that out sure. there. it is just it's one of those like my great grandpa cut a tree down built it it's so heavy that I haven't had the means to get it to my house so it's a very large. Anywho, Jacob Wolf House is located in Norfolk, Arkansas, which is not Norfolk, Virginia. I repeat, this is not Norfolk, Norfolk. My whole life, everybody's like, oh, you're from Norfolk. I'm like, no, no, I'm nope. not. Norfolk. <laughs> the building was added to the National Register of Historical Places in 1973, and it's significant because Wolf House is the last two-story dog trot public structure in the United States. So, a dog trot is an open breezeway that's built into between two rooms so that a steady breeze can come in. So you've probably seen an old timey house that has like, you know, square building, square building, and then there's a hallway. And I thought those were called shotgun houses. Um, they have a lot of names. Okay. <laughs> but the actual but... hole is called a dog trot. Oh, okay. The breezeway is. And 
This is really important because they didn't have AC, obviously. So this catches the breeze and it really cools it down. Okay. Which I can attest to this because I was there for so long. It was the only place that wasn't hot as shit. So the Wolf House is extra badass because it also has a second story. So, and by public structure, I mean that it's the last building used for a civic purpose, like a courthouse. There are other dog trot buildings still standing, but they're either private homes or early stage coach inns or taverns. So, little fun fact for you there. The Jacob Wolf House stands on a hillside overlooking the juncture between the White and the North Fork River. It was constructed in 1829. And it was the first permanent courthouse for Izzard County in Arkansas Territory. And it is one of the oldest public structures in Arkansas. Coincidentally, I also worked for the Historic Arkansas Museum that has the Hinderleiter Grog Shop that was built around 1826 to 1827. So I've worked in the two oldest buildings in Arkansas. Uh, No big deal. But um, some people actually claim that the Wolf House is older. So there's like a debate, but for the sake of this, I'm using what the Historic Arkansas Preservation says. So I figure they would know. But if you're from Norfolk, you're probably going to be like, yeah, it's the oldest. And if you're from Little Rock, you'll be like, no, we're the oldest. (laughs) (laughs) Anywho, back to the river. The juncture of the White River and the North Fork River was a site of early fur trading activity. From 1819 to 1828, numerous villages of the Suwannee and the Delaware Indians were located nearby. Trade with these Indian tribes prompted Jacob Wolf to establish his homestead at the north of the North Fork River in 1824. In 1825, he was granted a license to operate ferries across both rivers. Wolf, who was of German ancestry, had arrived in the area in 1820. He was a merchant, a builder of log structures, a carpenter, and a blacksmith, which was he's a jack of all trades, but this really helps him kind of make his name and fortune in this area. Izzard County was created in 1825, and in 1826, Jacob Wolf was elected a representative to the General Assembly of Arkansas Territory. In October 1829, he was successfully a part of passing legislation to relocate the permanent county courthouse to Liberty, the town that had developed around his homestead and his ferries. So Wolf decided to donate his land to the county for the courthouse and secured a contract for building the structure. So he owned the land. He didn't have anything yet. He convinced the city to give him the stuff to build it. Awesome. He built the two-story log house that had the central breezeway we talked about. The large upper-level room that extends over the breezeway served as the courtroom. Judges and lawyers traveled from distant parts of the territory to appear in regularly scheduled county and territorial court sessions. The lower levels of the house was the county clerk's office. John P. Houston, brother of the American legend Sam Houston, served as a county clerk in this courthouse. Families throughout the county camped on the courthouse grounds when the court was in session. They socialized and competed in games. So this was a huge social place. God, English. I was trying to think of something funny. English. No. So it also just dawned on me that by working here, I'm connected to Sam Houston. And by working at the Historic Arkansas Museum, I'm connected to Bowie. Because the Bowie knife. So I've been destined to live in Texas all along. Nice. Yay. Anyway, C.F.M. Nolan, traveling up the river in 1830, noted in an article published in the Arkansas Advocate, noted that where the North Fork River joins the White River stands a seat of justice and liberty is situated in a way that is elevated and commanding. So he noted that liberty had a tavern inn, a store, a blacksmith shop, and a post office that was established 1826. Wow. Okay. He, He got it all going. Okay. 
But new counties had been created out of Izzard County by 1835. Liberty was no longer in an advantageous location for the county seat, and it was relocated to the now non-existent town of Athens. Wolf, still serving in the General Assembly, passed legislation to have the land he had donated to the county returned back to him, which is smart as shit. For real. The structure that he had built as the courthouse then became his home for his extensive family of 16 children and five stepchildren. God damn, that's a lot of children. That's a lot of children. Thousands of early settlers followed the White River into the interior of North Arkansas and passed by the Wolf House. Many stopped by to trade, and Wolf prospered. He was an early leader of the Baptist Church in Arkansas until his death on January 1st, 1863, and then the house was sold in 1865. The house somehow survived over the decades, even as time changed, and the Missouri Pacific Railroad was actually put right in front of the house. So it survived all that. The city was named Devereo. Devereo? I did not know this. I feel like a terrible Norfolkian. Okay. <laughs> and then it was renamed to Norfolk. The town was incorporated in 1910. Several sawmills operated locally until 1920s. And freshwater mussels were harvested from the riverbeds for a button industry, which I also did not know. Uh, okay. Nobody told me this. I lived there forever. Okay. A... <laughs> <laughs> a novelty in 1927 was that the movie Souls of Flame was filmed, which used many of the residents as extras for the Civil War film. Oh, wow. Again, I did not know this. <laughs> All the while, Wolf House stood used intermittently as a residence. It came under public ownership just before World War II as the community came to recognize this historical value. <laughs> in the 1960s, the anti-Semitic Evangelist Gerald L. K. Smith, creator of the Christ of the Ozark statue in Eureka Springs, uh. <laughs> paid for the restoration and furnishing on behalf of the Elma, Elma M. Smith Foundation, which I don't think I knew that either, that he did that. Ah, that's another story for another day, the Christ of the Ozarks, which is cool as shit. He's just not nope. being anti-Semitic and all. Anyway. A public dedication took place on May 8, 1966, with an address made by a former congressman, Claude Albert Fuller. In 1999, the Courthouse Restoration Grant from the Arkansas Historic Preservation Program provided the funding to restore the structure to its appearance as it did when it served as a territorial courthouse. So this is about the time that it shut down and I wasn't allowed to work there anymore. But before that, the front had stairs and it had a deck kind of porch thing. And that wasn't in the original. <laughs> At that time, conflicting dates for the construction were resolved through scientific studies. So they did a lot of archaeological studies and they were able to make, know that the date was, you know, 1829. The restoration was completed in 2002. So word around the town is that it was supposed to have more archaeological studies. So we were told that they were supposed to reconstruct the blacksmith shop, add the kitchen, maybe put some slave cabins up. And that was just stuff that we heard around town. But this was right after 9-11, so a lot of funding for everything kind of just got shut down for the yep. war effort. So this is not something I could verify online, but it's just something that I heard from people that were working there. Um, but they're all dead now, so I can't ask them unless we have a Ouija thing, and I don't do that. So I have the planchette on my arm. <laughs> you bring the board. No, thanks. I don't do <laughs> demons. No. Okay, so the house was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 73, like I said, and since then it has served as a museum off and on. In 2016, the court actually voted to transfer the property into the Department of Arkansas Heritage, which 
where it now operates as the Jacob Wolfhouse Historic Site. So I was not able to find anything online at all about this place being haunted. <laughs> and it's probably because when it was open, it just reopened at its museum. So people haven't had a time to really experience this yet, you know? So oh, yeah. It was all a lot of old people that couldn't have used the internet anyway. And then when I was there, it was like the time of dial-up and chat rooms, if anybody yep. remembers how old that is. Um, <laughs> so there's not a lot on it. But when I was there, I, I experienced a lot of stuff. So first of all, when I'd work in the museum store, you would be behind they had an old-fashioned cash register. And then they had like a case full of those old candy canes, you know, the straight ones that are in old houses. Yes. Love those things. And then it had a uh, connecting room that was kind of like a museum room with artifacts. So I'd be sitting in there, and the whole time I could hear footsteps coming in and around the museum part. And then they had, like, the saloon doors that opened, and then that thing would open, and then it would stop. So that would happen almost every time I was there. Starting to lose my voice. (laughs) 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 That's Jacob Wolf coming back for me. Yes. Uh, I used to mouth him a lot, too, because I was just a dumb kid. That's why you got haunted. He had a lot of wives, and I remember one time being like, mm, what happened to those wives? And then shit started getting even more real. So that room, and then behind the house, behind the museum, they had rebuilt a tiny little log cabin that was like a cousin of his or something. So they used to use the top attic as storage. So I'd go up there to get books and stuff. So I was up there getting books one day, and the door was like a little flap thing, and it slammed, and a nail got wedged into it, so I couldn't get out. So I was like, at that point, I was just like, God damn it, ghost, let me out. So I was trying to find something to like wedge it out, but the train was coming. So at that time, I was really hot. So I was hanging out the window because I needed a breeze and the train went by. And I'm like, every one of those people probably think I'm a ghost right now because I was in full pioneer outfit. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So I hope that today people are still telling the story of the young pioneer girl in that window. It was me. Oh, my gosh. I know. I'm really excited. I, I had way too much fun with that. Okay, so the house itself. So every morning I'd go out there and they'd have all the windows and doors locked. So I'd have to go in there and unlock them. And they had these little latches where you could pull the shutters back so they didn't flap in the wind. And there'd be a lot of mornings I'd go out there and the latches were gone. And I'd be like, Ugh, whatever. So I'd go into the store to get more. And when I went out there, they were back. So they did that a lot. When you were in the bottom floor, you'd hear footsteps upstairs a lot. Um, and then sometimes it would sound like chairs scraping across the floor. But uh. nobody could be up there because I had the keys. So that was a thing. And uh, one time, my mom's friend from Chicago was down and I was talking about the wolf house and it was like midnight and she's like let's go down there and see and my mom's like okay whatever so we're in the dog trot and this time I'm probably like 17 18 I haven't been there in a long time and my mom's like oh hey Jacob did you miss Kena and as soon as she said that the lock on the door started jiggling I've never seen so many women run that fast in my life <laughs> her friend ran so fast that the door was like get out we gotta get out we gotta get out oh my god so, it was really funny. And then the last is kind of like a legend. All growing up, people used to talk about how if you went by the wolf house at night around midnight, you'd see people hanging from the steps. So that was the thing everybody would try to stay up. Like if you're on a bus trip and you're coming home, you'd like try to stay up so you could see the steps or whatever. But it wasn't possible because those steps didn't exist when it was a courthouse for one. And they also hang people from the trees, not the building. So it's not possible, but it's a fun little legend that we had. Oh, yes. So that's the uh, Jacob Wolf house. But if you ever want to go see it, it's open now and it's really cool. Oh, that's cool. I would love to go. I love like the old timey museums like that where they dress up and stuff. 
Yeah, well, I'm on the postcard team. <laughs> of oh, course I actually you have, are. I have the picture. I have them here. I can post that. <laughs> okay, good. Good. We will. Me as a young little tiny human dressed up like a pioneer girl. Whippersnapper. <sighs> a little chubby pioneer girl. Woo, that's before I grew into myself. Bless it. I'm <laughs> sure you were adorable. Oh, yeah. It was a fun times. Fun times. When I was working at hand, they were talking about how they just acquired the wolf house and stuff. And I was like, I'm on the postcard. <laughs> hip, hip, hip. I'm so hip, 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 hip. <laughs> uh, Yeah, it's a fun little place. And they do a Pioneer Day every May where they do like Civil War reenactments. They have people churning butter and, you know, lots of stuff. They have lots of games and a parade. It's a, yes. it's a big deal. It's fun. It's one of those That's fun little small town things. Yes. We used to go to a museum when I was a kid. Like, we would go um, with school. I can't remember which museum it was, but they would dress in, like, the pioneer dresses. And they had the black blacksmith shop and all that. And we also got to, like, make homemade candles. Oh, uh, was it the old folk center? I don't think so. Uh, I don't remember. I'm going to have to look it up. But it it was so cool. And we went there every year, and I loved it. And I really want to go back. One of my friends... Lila, who listens to this, and I mentioned to uh, you, mentioned her to you earlier. There we go. In a she, different episode. In a different episode. She uh, used to work at this place and would wear, like, the colonial dress and stuff. So. Oh, cool. Yes, I'll have to find the pictures, but yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. My mom actually hand-sewed my costume. Had a little wow. And everything. Oh, yeah. my God. That's awesome. It's precious. It's in the cedar chest, too. <laughs> next to your uh, yeah. key to the city i know it's in there yeah. i have the newspaper article that says that i got it so i have proof i'm not making it up but it's okay we wouldn't question you even if you were yeah i was also the mayor of north fork for a day i won that election for school of course you were yeah i've always been a very uh high very ambitious <laughs> high 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 reaching individual even when i was like sixth grade i'm like i'm gonna be mayor for a day it's fine let's do fine. this just like you do. Yeah. <laughs> I feel very like underachievery now. Yeah, it's fine. I was on the news in the sixth grade talking about the tornado. Oh. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, how about your hometown? Okay, so my hometown, I'm going to talk about the Garden Light. So I grew up in Clark County, Arkansas, which is like souther, southwestern Arkansas. I went to school in Arkadelphia, K through 12, but we lived in Garden until I was in, until I was about four, and then we moved to Caddo Valley, and then we moved to Curtis, which is this little bitty, bitty, bitty town, or hamlet, really, not even a town, between Garden and Arkadelphia. And when you're going into Garden, there are these railroad tracks, and it's referred to as the Garden Light. It has been featured on Shows like Scariest Places on Earth mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, the old show where it was on when ABC Family was still Fox Family. It had this show and it was vo- it was voiceover by the woman who's the psychic in Poltergeist, the little lady. She was yeah. also witch. Yes. Okay. So she did the voiceover for the episode about the Garden Light. I mentioned this a while ago, but I found this write-up about the Garden Light the history behind it that I found through Central Arkansas Library System's website. And it's a write-up that Stacy Nicole Morrow from Washtenaw Baptist University did. 
Oh, wow. And I'm, I'm going to read it word for word. And Washita Baptist is in Arkadelphia. It's one of the two colleges. So, so it's pretty fitting to read something from someone who, you know, was in that area instead of reading something that like a scholar did in a different state studying. It's, it's someone who was actually in the county. So she wrote, the Gurdon Light is a mysterious floating light above the railroad tracks near Gurdon, which is in Clark County, which was first sighted during the 1930s. Many theories and stories exist to explain the light, including one which connects, connects it to the 1931 murder of William McLean, a railroad, railroad, oh my God, I can't words, railroad worker, there we go. The popular local legend drew national attention in December of 1994 when NBC's Unsolved Mysteries television show documented the phenomenon. Gurdon is located approximately 85 miles south of Little Rock, which is Pulaski County on Interstate 30. It's just east of the interstate on Highway 67. The light appears along a stretch of railroad tracks outside of the town. Some people believe the light originates from the reflection of headlights of cars off of Interstate 30. However, the site is more than two miles from the highway, and people began seeing the light several decades before Interstate 30 was built in the 1970s. Ooh, spooky. Others believe, and this is what I was always told, others believe that swamp gas creates the light, though the light appears in all kinds of weather. Which okay, I can- isn't, that, isn't that what they say in Men in Black every time they need yep. an excuse why they're aliens, they say swamp gas? <laughs> Yes, and there's also um, in Marfa, Texas, there are similar lights. They're called the Marfa lights, and they're also chalked up to swamp gas. Huh. So, and I've been out, I've been to the Garden Light several times in different types of weather and can attest that, yeah, it's like, it shows up not just when it's hot and stuff like that. So, they say it's swamp gas that creates the light. A somewhat popular story is that a railroad, wor- why can't I say railroad? railroad worker was working outside of town one night when he accidentally fell into the path of the train and was killed and that's what i grew up hearing was that someone was decapitated by the train since his head was severed from his body many locals say that the light is the lantern his ghost used while looking for his head still others believe that pressure on the quartz crystal underneath Gurton causes them to let off electricity and produce the light which side note I have never seen a quartz crystal in Garden in my life, so I don't know how much, like, bearing I put into that, but okay. Is it just because it's close to some of the, like, quartz mines? Well, I mean, most of the quartz mines are, like, hot springs, hot springs yeah. and um, Lake Hamilton, Lakeside, you know, that little area up. So, I mean, they're very well, I mean, because the, you can find quartz crystals at the Murfreesboro Diamond Mine sometimes. So, I guess it's possible that quartz is down there, but I've just, I'm until I read this the other night, I had never heard of quartz being in I think they're grasping at straws here. I, I don't so believe too. it. Yeah, so many trace the Garden Light legend to a murder that took place near the railroad tracks in December 1931. William McLean, a foreman with the Missouri Pacific Railroad, was involved in an argument with one of his employees, Lewis McBride, regarding how many days McBride was being allowed to work. During the Depression, the company did not have the option of giving McBride more hours on the job. McBride became very angry hit McLean on the head with a shovel, and beat him to death with a railroad spike maul and a spike hammer. Ah, Yes. The Gurdon light was first sighted shortly after this murder, and many have come to believe that the light is actually McLean's ghostly lantern glowing. This local legend made the area near Gurdon a very popular place, especially around Halloween. The story became so well-known 
that Unsolved Mysteries was there. And they filmed a recreation of the 1931 murder there. The program aired on December 16th, 1994, thus documenting the phenomenon for the world and describing the legend behind it. So, okay, first off, I I have to say that my my mom's dad, my papa Richie, was one of those people that like talked to everyone and was really nice to everyone. And he had a friend who was actually homeless that lived down those tracks. Oh, wow. Back in the day. So I, when I was little, the first time I ever went to the Garden Light, I was four and I went with my older cousins and I remember just being terrified. I don't know how I ended up loving scary stuff as much as I did now because I remember crying and screaming the whole time because like I didn't want to go and they like straight up picked me up and carried me down there. So, you know, as a torture Ashley moment or something, I don't know. My, I don't know. My cousins were super mean. But anyway, but uh, so there was a homeless guy that lived down there and like my grandpa would take him food and stuff like that. So I used to think that the light was actually that homeless person just like screwing with people. Oh, but it it wasn't. And he died like way before I ever went down there. But that was still like a fear of mine. So anyway, I am a weird person. And every year. (laughs) So living in Curtis, I was only maybe five or six miles from the garden light. And so for my birthday, you know, I lived in the country and most of my friends were what you would consider like city folk kind of, they lived in Arkadelphia proper. And I lived like 15 minutes outside of town and, you know, 15 minute drive to Walmart. And we didn't really, you know, eat out a lot because it would, you'd have to drive to town for it, blah, blah, blah. So for my birthday every year, we would eat a ton of pizza at my house, eat cake, ice cream, watch scary movies. And then once it got dark, we would go to see the garden light. Okay. If that wasn't your birthday, I'd be so disappointed in you. Right. I know. And I, it did not hit me until like, I think last month that that was fucking weird. (laughs) I texted my mom and I was like, Hey, uh, I just realized this was probably really weird. So thanks for being cool with your child's weird um hobbies and she was like yeah all your friends seemed into it so I mean we weren't gonna stop you I mean I honestly don't think it's that weird if you think about it a lot of teenage girls do that like light as a feather stiff as board oh yeah we definitely did that shit yeah like it's everybody everybody tries to see a ghost when they're a teenager you just happen to have one that was real the rest of us were like trying to find something that wasn't there (laughs) yes so like let me let me set the picture a little bit so going to the garden light you would drive down the highway. You're going past like cow pastures. There's horses on the side of the road, like real rural. That's real hard to say. Real rural. <laughs> um, so you're going, you go down and you drive and drive and you get to the railroad tracks and you literally like, there's not like, this is not a tailor made tourist attraction. There's no fancy gift shop or visitor center or parking lot. You park on the side of the road in like a little area that has been dug out from cars stopping on the side of the road to go to the garden light. And then you get out and you start walking down these tracks and you literally have to listen to see if a train is coming. Oh no. Yeah. Like it was back in the day, it was a working railroad track. And so you go and like they say that they always how it was told to me was you had to walk down the railroad tracks past three trestles, three little bridges to get to where you could sit down and then you're supposed to bang on the 
railroad track with a rock to summon the ghost looking for his head. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and I know listeners can't see my hand gestures, but yes, summoning the ghost. They're magic. And yes, yeah, so it's it's just, it's a light. Like sometimes it's white, sometimes it was red, sometimes it was green, and it's just a, like a, a glowing orb. That, really? I didn't yes. even change colors. Yes, it did. And, um, it just, I mean, it was just, it was random colors. And every time I saw it, my logical brain was like, someone's fucking with us. And I would get mad. I'd be like, who's down there with a flashlight? And we get yeah. really mad. People would be like, oh, it's the light. And I'm like, no, it's someone with a flashlight. Especially because there's a, a road that ran next to the railroad tracks that mm-hmm. people would like four-wheeler ride and stuff down there. And purposely go and like hide under the trestles or hide back there to shine the light but it was creepy because you're walking through the woods basically I mean it's lined with trees on either side there's a little uh before the first trestle there's a little family graveyard out in the woods which was super creepy but we would always go like tromp around in this graveyard like super normal people like yeah you just you just go see the light and the first time I went as like a preteen it was right around when Blair Witch Project came out oh no (laughs) and somebody had made a ton of those fucking stick figure things that are hanging in the woods in the Blair Witch and hung them along the tracks oh I was done I was so done like I was like I'm out nope and anytime we would cross the trestles they're like between the railroad what are they the the boards of the trestles was open space and I would literally out loud be like, I swear to God, if someone reaches up between these boards and grabs my ankle, I'm going to kill you. Like, <laughs> I would freak out. So, like, I love scary stuff, but that was just, it would freak me out. Yeah, so we went every year for my birthday. And one year, one of our friends, he was new to the area. Oh, no. <laughs> had moved there from a different city in high school and became part of our friend group because he was in band. He got so freaked out while we were down there that we had to sing the lion sleeps tonight from lion king to calm him down oh that is so beautiful so a bunch of little redneck teens (laughs) out in the woods who have just watched like six hours of scary movies and stuffed themselves full of pizza and are now walking in the dark in august when it's hella hot at midnight and singing lion king because this city boy is like freaking out but yeah, so um, now what's really sad is that they the city has since ripped up those tracks and it's just a road. And I didn't know that. Yes, the tracks are no longer there, which makes me really sad because it really, for all the weirdness, it it was kind of like a fixture of the community. Yeah. And I mean, it was fun. It was something to do when you were bored and just wanted to freak out the new kid or just have something to do because I mean there was nothing to do we had to drive 45 minutes to go to a mall or the movies or anything like that so it was just like you know we would either go walk the tracks for the garden light or we would go ride the back roads or something like that so it was really cool I don't know what exactly to believe but by way of what causes it but I always heard swamp gas and even like my my dad's parents would stop at the end of the track sometimes just to look and see if they could see it from the truck. And so <laughs> and that always made them so happy. So. So, yeah, that's the garden light. And yeah, the tracks aren't there anymore. So I don't know if anybody walks it 
walks the road to see lights or if you even can. I was just going to ask you if people had seen it since the tracks went away. I was actually talking about it with my family a couple weeks ago and none of us have heard of anyone walking it since the tracks came up. And now that's like a, um, it's Georgia Pacific, the like paper company. It used to be international paper down there, but now it's Georgia Pacific. And that road is like a GP road logging road. Oh, they like, before they took the tracks up the last time I went, I was an undergrad and a bunch of us from UCA went down from Conway. Like, I don't know why it was dumb, but they had like deforested most of the area, like where the cemetery was, was like completely decimated and all that. So they cut down a ton of the trees and put in a road. So it sucks. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah. So it's completely degenerated and it makes me super sad, but oh well. Fun fact, that's the same railroad that was in my story. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. I didn't either. We didn't even know. Yeah, Two different sides of the state. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I had no idea that they ripped it up. Every time I drive by Gurdon, I'm like, I should stop. But I guess I'm glad I no, didn't. You should. There's nothing there. <laughs> yeah. No, you're not missing much. Trust me. Huh. That's really interesting. I mean, I've seen it on TV and stuff. I just didn't know a whole lot about it. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to, like, watch the TV shows and stuff about it. But, yeah, there's, like, no, nothing there anymore, which makes me really sad. Because, yeah, that was, like, such a big part of my childhood. Yeah, and it's always listed in one of the most haunted places in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Yep. Usually right under the Crescent Hotel. Like, Yep. I still well, need to go there and stay. Oh, it's amazing. Ah, oh, forever a fan. Love it. Love it so much. I didn't see a ghost. It's very disappointing. I think I wanted it too much. Yeah, I have a picture. I need to find it. It's on my old laptop, which I never open anymore. But when I went and did the ghost tour of the Crescent, I in that main lobby area that you can walk out the back doors to the deck area, I took a picture out that window and got like the top half of a woman in like a Victorian dress. What? And I thought someone was screwing with me. So I actually went out there to look and see who it was. And there was no one there. And I keep meaning to find that photo and send it to them. And I just forget. But once I find it, I'll have to like share it to our page and all that. So yeah. what I love about them is that they really run with it. They love being the like or the yeah. haunted hotel in the United States. And they keep it all like pictures and stories in that book in the lobby. Oh, yes. Um, I paid, I think it was like $50 extra to stay in a haunted room. <laughs> And Worth like, it. what are you doing? But we stayed in uh, Miss Theodora's room. And the story with her is that if she doesn't like you, she'll pack your bags and put it up against the door. Like, oh, man. Or if you fight. There's a story of these people are getting ready to get married and they got into a big fight. And they decided to cool down and go to the bar and have a drink. And when they came back, they couldn't get the door open. So they finally pushed it and they realized that all their luggage was against the door and her wedding dress was in the trash can. Oh, nice. <laughs> And then uh, Ghost Hunters did an episode and uh, one of the guys was staying in that room. And when he went back in, all the equipment is against the door. But yeah, we didn't have any of that. I woke up at one in the morning, just like panicked, like my heart was racing and my Fitbit showed this like massive spike. And I don't know why I did that. And I saw in the lobby that people had said they'd woken up at 1 a.m. for no reason. So uh, Zeke just laughed at me. I was like, joke's on you. I'm going to turn on every light so I can go pee now. Right. (laughs) I gotta wake up. You gotta wake up. Hell yeah. But that was it. Yeah, nothing else really happened. But although I've had friends that have been there that are like, things touched me. I saw something. I took pictures. Yeah, nothing happened. 
it was just a delightful vacation with like wine tastings and I love your it's so awesome it's the most beautiful place ever I love it all right so should we move into the hubs yes I am so excited I can't wait to hear about this you've been like pumping me up I don't know I'm ready I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a picture in just a second so you can get the full as soon as I start talking about it hold on (laughs) okay I gotta okay I'm ready all right so my husband is a Yankee so we're going way up north to almost Canada they call it the north I learned that when I was there the north what okay the north woods the north north woods all right so in the heart of the north woods near Rhinelander Wisconsin lucky visitors may come across a mysterious mischievous beast known as the hodag what <laughs> okay it's the best name like the second they said hodag i'm like i don't know what it is but i'm in let's Let's do this. The legendary creature has roamed the Northwoods for more than a century and has become the official symbol of the city of Rhinelander. And uh, I pulled a lot of this information from their website because they are really rolling with it. Good. <laughs> like, uh, All right. So the first person to spot the Hodag was likely a lumberjack. In the 1800s, Rhinelander was a pioneer lumber town. And the loggers who worked the Northwoods told stories of a monster roaming the forest. Legend had it that this hodag was a reincarnated spirit of the sturdy, hardworking oxen that dragged logs from the forest. However, a hodag story might even predate the Northwoods. Some historians suggest that the hodag resembles pictographs found near Lake Superior that depicts the Mishu Pishu, the OG. Oh God, hold on! I had this earlier. <laughs> that depict the the Ojibwe water panther. Okay. So what does the hodag look like? This is where it gets good. According to 1893 accounts by Eugene Shepard, the hodag had the head of a frog, which you're going to hate. Nope, not about that. <laughs> the, grinning, the grinning face of a giant elephant, thick, short legs set off by huge claws, the back of a dinosaur, and a long tail with spears on the end. The hodag also has green eyes, huge fangs, and two horns sprouting out of its temples. I'm sending you a photo right now. Okay, good. I'm, like, trying to picture it. It's very terrifying sounding. Nope, don't like that. Nope. (laughs) That's from the city. It's a big statue. (laughs) Well, A, I love the photo, but I do not love this creature. Oh, my God, but Murray Dog was such a little baby. He was a little baby. And I'm holding him, and he looks terrified like the Hodag's about to eat him. So it's fun. Big mood, Murray. Big mood. (laughs) All right. So the Hodag reportedly breathed fire and smoke and had a pungent smell, a combination of buzzard meat and skunk perfume. I would expect nothing less of something called a Hodag. The name makes me giggle. Yes. (laughs) Early reports indicate that the Hodag was seven feet long, 30 inches tall, and weighed about 200 pounds. But as visitors will see in the Hodag statues and murals around Rhinelander, the Hodag's exact appearance has long been an interpretation. According to contemporary accounts from Gene Shepard, who discovered the Hodag in 1890s, the Hodag ate mud turtles, water snakes, oxen, and white bulldogs, but only on Sunday. Only white bulldogs? Only on Sunday. Okay. It's very specific. It is very specific. Is it kind of like, it's kind of like how Southerners crave Chick-fil-A on Sundays? 
<laughs> Maybe. I don't know. That's the first thing Zeke told me. It was like, oh, so Hodag and he eats white bulldogs on Sunday. And I was like, wait, back up. What's going on? Okay. <laughs> I have okay. questions. There were yes. no answers. All right. So, but it's the website says, but really, when you're a Hodag, you can eat whatever you want. Rumor has it that the Hodag will snatch fish directly off your line. But he prefers a traditional Northwoods Friday night fish fry with potato pancakes, which is the most northern thing you'll ever hear me say. That That is like a, that's so special. <laughs> so the Hodag story went viral in 1893, thanks to the Northwoods lumberman, resort owner, and discoverer of the Hodag, Eugene Jean Shepard that we talked about. Shepard was first to circulate reports of the Hodag, including photographic evidence he claimed to have of the beast. As the story goes, a group of local men used hunting dogs, rifles, squirt guns loaded with poison water to attack the Hodag, but they had to use dynamite to successfully kill the fearsome creature. I wonder what the poison water was. That, that's what I was going to say. Like, and uh, I have so many questions. I know, and there's no answers. Yes. God damn it. <laughs> I need to know, like, what the poison water was. How did they, like... Were they super soakers or were they like the dollar store little squirt guns that you have to keep pulling? Like, I don't know. Also, also, like, what kind of squirt guns did they have in 1893? I have. Yes. I don't know. This is. Anyway, (laughs) three years later, Shepard came back with an even bigger claim. He said that he captured a live hodag with the help of some bear wrestlers and a healthy dose of chloroform. Naturally. Does this rag smell like chloroform hodag? He took the captured beast on tour throughout the state, including a stop at the Oneida County Fair, where attendees paid to see the Hodag in person. In dark and tense, amazed onlookers heard the Hodag growl and even saw the creature move. The story of the Hodag spread quickly into the national newspapers. As word spread, a group of scientists from the Smithsonian Institution planned to make an expedition to Rhinelander to investigate. It was only then the shepherd admitted that the hodag, or at least his version, was a hoax. A creature made of wood and oxen leather that only moved with the help of wires. You think? So, does the story end there? No. <laughs> for decades, golfers around Rhinelander have blamed the hodag for the disappearing golf balls, sunglasses, and anglers claim the beast snatches their trophy catches right off their lines. Bastard. The hodag has made a cameo on the famous cartoon series... Scooby-Doo in 2012 called Hodag of Horror. Oh my god. In the episode, the Hodag appears as a surprisingly vivacious jewel thief, robbing the unsuspecting people of Crystal Cove. Apparently, the Hodag took a little trip to the hometown of Fred, Daphne, Velma, and Shaggy and Scooby. Worth a watch and it's on the YouTube machine. I watched it. It was funny. Oh my gosh. Gene Shepard also shows up in the episode as a showman in a red suit accompanying a traveling cabinet of curiosities. So Scooby-Doo isn't the only appearance the Hodag has made on the small screen. The story of Gene Shepard and the Hodag also showed up in the Travel Channel series Mysteries at the Museum. Maybe the most famous depiction of the Hodag in recent years was his introduction into the Harry Potter universe courtesy artist, yeah courtesy author jk Rowling, and an expanded edition of fantastic beasts and where to find them the book about magical creatures that populate the harry potter series uh that's supposedly written by the fame magizoologist oh jesus magizoologist there we go newt scamander was released in 2017 and included an entry on the hodag it says that scamander's description of the hodag matches previous accounts 
identifying the creature as roughly the size of a large dog. The book entry also says that like the Snallygaster, the Hodag is a North American creature whose antics have excited considerable muggle interest and curiosity. There is also an app for that. You can download the Hungry Hodag app and what? help the Hodag chomp his way through Rhinelander. Oh, I'll be downloading that. <laughs> right? I'm so excited. The Hodag became the official symbol of Rhinelander, Wisconsin. It is the mascot of their high school, and it lends its name to numerous businesses and organizations, including an annual music festival, the Hodag Country Festival, which... I don't know country because I don't listen to country, but that, this year they have Lady Antebellum, which I know them. Yes. They're big. So this isn't a small festival. This is a big, wow. like three days. It's in June. So go we to their website. To yeah. Get some tickets, guys. Be a good old time. So the city of Rylander's website calls Rylander the home of the Hodag. A larger than life fiberglass sculpture of the Hodag created by a local artist resides on the ground of the area chamber of commerce, which is what you just looked at. <laughs> Rhinelander Ice Arena houses two hodags, one a full-body creature just inside the entrance, and the other an oversized head that blows smoke and has red eyes that light up, located in the corner just off the ice, which was created by the same artist who designed the chamber hodag. So the city of Rhinelander has some jokes, and I really dig it, so I'm going to read off their little infographic that they accept. <laughs> <laughs> so, the late summer sunset stole its color from the hodag's eyes. Okay. Hodag tears make the world's best lemonade. Unfortunately, the hodag never cries. <laughs> the spikes on the hodag's tail serve as the perfect marshmallow roasting stick. If he tilts his head just right, the hodag can pick up every Milwaukee Brewers radio broadcast on his horns. But the reception is fuzzy. That also might be the most northern thing I'll ever say. Yes. When the wind blows through the Hodag's fur, it plays the perfect version of the beer barrel polka. Oh, my God. Those northerners like their polka. If you ever go to a northern wedding, everybody dances the polka. And I was like, I don't know what to do. We what? don't do this to sell. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. I've never heard of that. It's really fun. But I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm too hillbilly for this. Ah, it was very Line dancing. Line dancing. <laughs> yeah. The hodag will eat fresh fish out of the lake, but he prefers a traditional Wisconsin fish fry with potato pancakes. I think we mentioned that earlier. They're really hammering that in. <laughs> Boom Lake was formed after the hodag did a cannonball in a puddle. Oh, my God. The hodag smells exactly like a pine-scented car air freshener. What the? Okay. Which is a contradiction from the earlier skunk perfume. So yeah. Stick to your story, hodag. All right. The Hodag is a scratch golfer, and he never needs to buy golf balls because he just collects the ones you miss and hit into the woods. Uh, some of these jokes landed, but probably not all of them. But <laughs> they also said that the Hodag was discovered in 1893, the same years that Pabst won the Blue Ribbon. So they said, coincidence? I think not. <laughs> oh, my God. They are uh, leaning all the way in. Oh, absolutely. The Hodag was also... The third string center for the Green Bay Packers during the Ice Bowl in 1967. Oh, my God. And finally, they say the Hodag raised the prize-winning milk goat in 2009 Wisconsin State Fair. <laughs> I don't even know what those mean. Like, why? But These are certainly all words. This is their literal city website. That's all wonderful. That, all that came from it. Wow. Man, Hodag sounds like something that would be in the South, honestly. It does. I was really shocked. I was like, that sounds like a hillbilly thing. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, I was uh, really excited to see it and take a picture with it. Yes. Still confused about a lot of the details, but I mean, it's an urban legend. What what yeah. can you do? Or I love them. Oh, me too. So funny. But yeah, they really run with it. They have themed everything. So that's nice. You can buy merch on their website too. As well. Oh my god, I need a Hodak T-shirt. God, me too. Oh man. That's so we got for me, Terry. Okay, so <laughs> this is super short, but let me just say. So in preparing for this, I was like, Terry, what kind of weird spooky shit did you do when you were a teen? Like, did you go to cemeteries or railroad tracks, blah, blah? And he was like, babe, I didn't, I didn't believe in that stuff until I met you. I'm like, awesome. <laughs> so what I've learned is that my husband's life did not really start until he met me because I made him ah. so much more awesome. Oh, that is so amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. Now he loves all that stuff, but he did not do that. He was a jock, and I don't think they really believed in that thing, those things. So he went to high school in Seguin, Texas, and so I picked something in Seguin. Woo, that's where I'm at. Yay. Yep, and I thought you would like it, too, since you are in Seguin. As I triangulate my position. So if you would like to go to Kina's house, okay. <laughs> so this is just a real quick write-up on woman hollering creek oh my god we drive over that every day like to the base. i remembered yeah. you mentioning this so i wanted to just like read about it real quick and then i need you to like confirm this for me at some point okay okay so this is a write-up from a website run by michael mays i keep trying to read it as michael myers but michael mays <laughs> who runs a website called texas cryptid hunter and he writes about all kinds of stuff, but this is just real quick what he wrote up, and I'm going to read it word for word. A lot of creeks in Texas are literally named Elm Creek, Peach Creek, Brushy Creek. If you ever come across an alligator creek, you can bet someone saw one there at some point. <laughs> but there's one creek that goes against the grain of the boring literal names, Woman Hollering Creek. And I love that it's called Woman Hollering because they say it's not literal, but I mean – You'll see it, it's literal. Like it's a woman that's hollering or yelling for us non-Southern folk. Or you non-Southern folk. I'm Southern as fuck. But anyway. <laughs> so no one really knows how it got its name. But there are two tales that have the most support. One tale ties into the story of La Llorona, the weeping woman who drowned her children and cries for them at night. Which I almost did La Llorona. And I'm really fascinated. And I follow a uh, Mexico-based paranormal society on facebook or a texas base that does a lot of mexican stories as well and a lot of their website is in spanish and they talk a lot about la llorona so i'm really fascinated but that'll be a different episode i'm sure and then there's a movie that's coming out this year that's la llorona or it has already come out i think it's already yeah. come out mm. anywho then here's the other tale a settler family a man woman and child lived alongside what is now woman hollering creek one day, a band of Native Americans roamed further south than normal, saw the settler's family's cabin, and raided it. The man was beaten, tortured, and murdered. The same fate awaited the child. The woman watched in horror, screaming for help, begging neighbors who were within earshot to come and save her family. Help never came. The Native Americans saved her for last, murdering her as well. If you are brave enough to go to the banks of the creek on a full moon, it is said that you can still hear the shrieks and wails from the upset, terrified, and angry spirit. Okay, first off, I do not love when folktales blame murdering and all that on Native Americans, but 
I'm not even going to get on that soapbox because it will take hours. But um, I need you at some point on a full moon night to go to this creek and tell me if you can hear a woman screaming. <laughs> oh, man, I don't know about that. <laughs> Better yet, I'll come down when a full moon is scheduled. We'll go together. It's a really fascinating tale. I think the La Llorona, I think, what is it, she... Some stories that she got mad at her husband, drowned her three kids, and then immediately regretted it. So now she's cursed to scream for her children. Yes. But yeah. then, like, snatch your kid and drown them, too. It's very, yes. uh, very brutal. <laughs> yeah, if I if I remember correctly, do not quote me on this, and I'm not going to put a loud reactionary sound in here to redact it. Um, if I remember correctly, the very first episode of Supernatural, season one, deals with La Llorona. I think so, yeah. I know it was an episode. I don't remember which one. I'm pretty sure it was the first episode. But yeah, so it's really fascinating. I like, I really want to go because as with my tale of the Garden Light, I really like going in the dark and standing in the woods and doing spooky shit. So I want to do that and I'll probably get cursed forever, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm very close. We yeah. all the time. Yeah, and I mean, there was like so much stuff down there. Like I know there's... um. I got my library masters from Denton, Texas, and they have the Goatman Bridge that's been on like ghost adventures and stuff. Oh yeah. I don't really want to go there. Uh in looking up Woman Hollering Creek, I mean there was tons of stuff just between Austin and San Antonio and Seguin that and I mean there's the the Marfa Lights and Marfa, Texas. There's like so much spooky shit in Texas. I need to just drive down there and look at all of it. I know, like San Antonio has the Manger Hotel and then yes. Emily Morgan, which are two of the most haunted. And then the Alamo is supposed to be super haunted. But okay, the one thing me and Zeke have noticed about Texas is that everything is the oldest in Texas here. So everything's like old and they're like, well, it's oldest blah, blah, blah. The oldest barbecue in Texas, the oldest bakery in te- Texas. So they really uh, pride themselves in being old. So old stuff's usually haunted. So Makes sense to me. Which means I need to live in Texas. Oh, it's amazing. I love it. Because I love that shit. Like, I, I eat that shit up. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. We... Like, they could be, like, the oldest toilet in Texas, and I'd be like, I need to poop on it. Like, Well, they got a toilet lid museum in San Antonio. <laughs> yes. 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 I almost did that museum. I almost <laughs> did that museum in episode seven, but no. Yeah. We got a lot of really cool stuff. I haven't seen everything yet, but I'm, I'm working on it. But, yeah, I really want to stay at the... I heard, like, the Emily Morgan, it's the one where if you get a room on one side, your balcony is basically overlooking the Alamo. And I think it was, like, level nine or something is supposed to be so haunted that nobody wants to stay there. How and cool. And the manger, people say if you just go to the bar, like, things will touch you and things will move. And that was supposed to be super haunted. That's wonderful. But that whole Not area is people. so old. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Good time. Right. Yeah. I, I have to see all of it. I know. I'm going to convince Zeke to stay there. It kills me. It's going to Yes. Happen. <sighs> Love it. So, yeah, that was our extra AF. And we, next month, will read your stories. So, if for us to read them, you got to send them in. So, send in your family histories, your town history, legends. Uh, even if you just want to hear about a legend, send them yeah. in. We'll do a quick history and talk about it on air. And send those okay. into historicalafpod at gmail.com. Woohoo! Yep, and you can find us at historicalafpod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah, and if you want to get some more content, you can join us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash historicalafpod. 
yes, two tiers, look on there. We've got so much stuff. Yeah, lots of stuff. We just put a drunk dive up, so it's good times. Had by all. Woo! So, yeah, have a fantastic month of June, and we'll be back in July for our second Extra AF. Yay! Bye! Bye!